If you have uh, your $50 gift cards, you can bring them to the altar. I don't know, uh, you might have gotten a text message from me saying I needed $50 or whatever. I don't know how much dollars it was. But you needed a gift card from me. That was not from me, and I'm sorry you got a text. We were, we were hacked in some way, our directory, and so all of you that numbers were in the directory got a message from somebody wanting uh, gift cards disguising themselves as me, speaking nothing like me. That was your first indication. So I uh, apologize for that. Um, Today, uh, young Christians, I'm not talking to the little ones, I'm talking to the rest of you young Christians as well as everybody, theologians. What happens when you fail to be who you think yourself to be? There's a singer and songwriter named Nightbird, at least that's what she calls herself, and in her song, It's Okay, she writes the following, I moved to California in the summertime. I changed my name thinking that it would change my mind. I thought that all my problems, they would stay behind. I was a stick of dynamite, and it was just a matter of time. All day, all night, now I can't hide. Said I knew myself, but I guess I lied. Said I knew myself, but I guess I lied. When we are young, we develop our personalities, our ways of being in the world, and then things happen to us. And when those things happen to us, maybe we adapt or maybe we stay committed or maybe we just lie. Like there's so many ways we fail to measure up to who we think ourselves to be. I think myself to be laid back, chill, at ease, comfortable in my own skin. But that is really just something that I learned to be over time because When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was anxious. I was ill at ease. And so my personality developed to cope with those feelings of anxiety. You relate to that. Or maybe, like thinking you are the smart kid, at least people tell you that you're the smart kid, and then you fail that test, and then the next one. You just can't get fractions or how to write a decent essay. Or thinking you are an athlete, confident, secure, but inside, before the game, you are a full-on mess. Everyone still thinks you're great. And so now you have to measure up to that identity. And you fail, or you fear failing, so you lie. You lie to yourself, you lie to others, you create new personas, and you decide to live there. I've changed, you say. I just don't play anymore. I really don't, not into grades or looks. I don't play by the rules of society. You change, you lie, or maybe you double down. You work harder, smarter, better, and live into who you think you are through hard work and better promises. What happens when you fail to be who you think yourself to be. Perhaps there's no more difficult place than being a father. To think of yourselves as a father, as a certain kind of father, and then your kids do something that upsets your apple cart of fatherhood. They irritate you at the dinner table. They make messes. They can't figure out how to fix the things that they broke, and they keep on breaking more things. 
In those moments, the temptation for us is to try to live into our identity of fatherhood, and when we fail, we craft a new persona. We lie to ourselves, or we just get angry. Today, I want you to listen in the sermon for what we do when we fail to measure up to God's standards and to our own standards, when we fail to be who we think ourselves to be. Listen for what happens and what God does. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. Hear God's word this morning from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhorred idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteousness to afflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Paul, here in Romans 2, moves directly by showing how God does not regard the mask, any mask of human righteousness, and then goes on to name the Jewish people God's people, the people who have the law, the people who God revealed himself through the law and through redeeming and freeing them from their slavery, the people whom God gave liturgies and signs and traditions so they might know him, and then a mission, you will be a light to the nations. When they see you, the world will in turn know me. 
Israel thinks they will flourish, and when they flourish, the world will know God by their flourishing. But Israel fails to live this out. They come to the promised land in fear. They won't become who God's called them to be, so they wander in the desert and grumble at God. When they arrive in the land, they don't fully occupy it, and their kings and their priests fail to lead them in the fear of the Lord, and then the kings and the priests change the rules. They lie about God. They lie about what it means to be God's people. The prophets warn them to repent, to return to God, but instead they lie to themselves, deny the prophets, say this isn't God and this isn't us. They become something else entirely. Then in exile and return to survive, they add to the law a system by which they will know who is in and who is out. They will be certain of the good guys and the bad guys, the holy and the reprobate. Paul writes to these people whose boasts have become their name Jew. This identity, this privilege of wearing this name, meaning that they are the chosen ones, the elect ones, those inside the covenant, God's people. They wear it as their identity, but it's largely in response to their failure to be who God has called them to be. It's like what we do when we're insecure. We boast about our accomplishments. And the Jews boast about their name. They boast about their history. They boast about their tradition, that they have the law and the other nations don't. They boast that they alone know God's will, and all the other nations are pagans, outsiders, sinners, and impure. In verses 17 to 20, Paul tells them that their problem is not that they fail to understand their importance. They were called to be God's people and to be a guide for those in the dark, to be an embodiment of truth and justice. Because they have the law, they have been called by God, but they have failed to live up to it. And in their failing, they've decided to lie to themselves. They've made their boast their privilege of their name and the fact that they are the keepers or the guardians of God's law. And they now make themselves exempt to judgment on the basis of this privilege. They preach against stealing and they steal. They preach against adultery and they commit it. They abhorred any idol, but they rob the temples. They boast and yet they break the law. The law that they are boasting about having. Their privilege and pride has cut them out from being who they are called to be, from being who they think they are, so they change the rules and they lie. Paul then gives us an illustration of this failing to be who they are, and it's the sign of circumcision. Paul here is allowing no separation of sign, circumcision, to reality practicing the law. Paul here is saying, that there should be no separation between those who are circumcised and those who obey the law. They should be one and the same. Comparable to our understanding of citizenship today, wherein nationality depends on birth rather than adherence to the ideals of the nation, so salvation was assured for the Jew by ritual of circumcision. And Paul here is parting from that idea, parting from his fellow Jews on this issue. For them, circumcision was the covenant. For him, it was a sign of the covenant. 
He does not say circumcision justifies, but says circumcision has value. Two different Greek words. Its value depends on the fulfilling of the substance it signifies. The covenant obedience is similar to wedding rings today, which have meaning only insofar as the vows of commitment symbolized by the rings are fulfilled. Failure to honor the marriage only renders the symbol meaningless and it scandalizes it. Paul says circumcision is meant to remind you who you are and whose you are so that you live into that identity and are faithful. This is the thing that's most true about you, Israel, but Israel lies to themselves. They make the marker itself the mark of the true, not being the people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And then he says, to add to their guilt and their shame, there are some who aren't circumcised who obey the law, even though they don't have the sign or the law, and they condemn you. In other words, your status as a Jew, as the guardian of the law, the knower of God's will, means very little. Now, we'll look at 28 and 29 and come back to it, but this Let's apply this to us a little bit. Who do you think yourself to be? As a Christian, as the church, Big C in North America, even as the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, who do you think yourself to be? We Reformed people often like to think of ourselves as deep, rich theology. We have great heroes, like we descend from Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Knox and Edwards. We have creeds and confessions. We were zealous for sharing the gospel, reaching the lost, planting churches, defending the truth, transforming our world through being faithful in our callings. But we too have failed to live into it. Luther wrote, awful things about the Jews, which were later used to fuel anti-Semitic hatred centuries later. Calvin's preaching led to capital punishment and murder of his theological opponents. John Knox advocated for violent revolution against England. In the PCA, we are the descendants from the PCUS, the Southern Church. We allowed that Southern culture to influence us regarding segregation. One of our very own founding fathers, Morton Smith, repeatedly argued before the presbytery that it did not damage the church in Christ's reputation for an elder in the church to teach that God has created the races in different gradations of intelligence. Smith insisted what harmed the church and its reputation was daring to oppose that teaching. In fact, on occasion, Smith argued that if the PCA were to follow the route of condemning these racist teachings, it will cause the liberalization of the PCA. Smith suggested that the PCA was in danger of wading into liberal waters of its estranged PCUS brethren with his strong rhetorical sway with denominational leaders who had a deep aversion to anything that could be perceived as theologically progressive. That's us. That's our history. In addition, 
The Western church in recent years has had case after case of tremendous abuse of boys and girls and women. We've seen leaders commit adultery, ruin their legacies, hurt their churches. We've seen alignments with people in positions of power for our own advantage. And in many of these dealings, when confronted with the reality of it, we've excused it. We've changed the rules. We've lied. Now, certainly things are complex, but I think the key is that the church and us, by extension, let me make sure and emphasize this, we as Christians make up a part of the church. All of us have little wings within that church. This is our story. And we have acted just like Israel. We've regarded our privilege, our history, our theology as greater than our practice of it. And when we've failed to be who we think we are or who God has called us to be, we bank on that privilege, power, position, and lie. And our illustration is baptism. When the sacrament dispenses with obedience instead of obligating to obedience, we run into the same danger that Paul saw in circumcision. The apostle had a mistrust that signs and rituals could become substitutes for the will of God rather than signs of it. As signs, they, remind, they remained expressions of the will of the believer and hence meaningful and necessary, but as substitutes, they became deceptive and dangerous. In other words, our sacraments and theology become our substitute. We bank on our heritage, our name, the fact that our parents were Christians, that I was baptized into the church, our identity as evangelical or conservative Christians or Reformed people. So what do we do with all this failure? Paul says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? What value in circumcision? Well, The advantage is they have revelation. The very words of God. And this was not to make them proud or privileged, but to make them humble. Their election, the Jews elected to this position by God, had nothing to do with them. It was all God's mercy. They are important in that they display God's incongruent grace and his mercy. This is the revelation that God's given to them. That God chose them because they were small and insignificant. It was incongruent, his grace. It was all God's grace in the fact that Israel was small and sinful. But in their unfaithfulness, them failing to be who God's called them to be, they've even failed to be who they think they are called to be, Instead of receiving it as mercy and grace that God chose them at all, they change the rules. They lie and hide in the face of accusation. And then Paul says, what do we do with all this? Like, what do we do with this failure? Does the Jews' failure to be true Jews signify that God is not God? Now, this is super important today. Paul here asks an apologetic question. 
If the religious people fail to be who they are called to be, fail to be who we think they are, and then lie and cheat and change things up in response, doesn't this make God a liar? I mean, this whole thing is a crock. This is a very real accusation. The question of theodicy. Can God be good and all-powerful when his people who identify as his people are so evil? Now, the quick answer might be, well, they just weren't true believers. I think that's too easy. That might be true, but I don't think Paul goes there in Romans. Paul is not going to just leave the Jews behind here. And Romans itself is really asking this question, like, not just this question about, hey man, if the Jews aren't true, then is God a liar? But also, he's asking the question, why don't the Jews believe in the crucified Jesus as Messiah? It's a theodicy question that's at the heart of this book. Can God be trusted? Is he true? Is he really who he says he is? I mean, if we look at all these failures in our history and in our current cultural moment with the church, where people aren't living as they ought, where people aren't loving God and loving their neighbor, where people who identify as the church, even our own selves, by the way, aren't doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, then is this thing a sham? I mean, I don't need the church then. Deconversion is a very real thing in our world. We have celebrity after celebrity after celebrity, Christian celebrity, by the way, who have left the church, who make an announcement on Instagram about how something in the church failed them, and so they are not only, they're done with the whole thing. They're they're deconverting from whatever this thing is and doing something else entirely. Maybe that's totally atheistic, or maybe it's some amalgam of things, but they are themselves in the midst of their suffering and their struggle and their hurt lying them to themselves and changing the rules so they can be who they feel they are called to be. It's not just religious people that do this, by the way, but but everybody, when faced and confronted with our unrighteousness, is tempted to make new religions where we can be righteous. Orthodox priest Stephen Freeman, in his latest essay, When America Got Sick, writes... Having largely lost our religions, modernity has seen fit to create new ones. If we wonder what constitutes a modern religion, our efforts to create one, we need to look no further than our public liturgies. Various months of the year are now designated as holy seasons set aside to honor various oppressed groups and causes. It is an effort, listen to this, not railing against this, by the way, it is an effort to liturgize the nation as the bringer and the guardian of justice in the world, an effort that seeks to renew our sense of mission and to portray our nation as something that we believe in. It must be noted that as a nation, we have not been content to be one among many. We have found it necessary to believe in our country, and it is a symptom of religious bankruptcy. So in an effort to deal with a church that doesn't measure up, doesn't live into who they say they are, we leave the church and create new religions. 
Perhaps the most prescient and urgent of all secular liturgies with which we find ourselves enamored are the competing faiths of elephants and donkeys. We've capitulated political affiliation to the apex of unavoidable absolutes that demarcate friends and foes. Dave Zoll says, if once upon a time we looked to politics primarily for governance, we now look to it for belonging, righteousness, meaning, and deliverance. We liturgize ourselves on partisan doctrine because it isn't that what good believers do. In so doing, we've annexed flesh and blood for bureaucratic pendants with generalized dissimilar acquaintances into the collective other. See, this is what the Jews of Paul Day were doing. This is what Paul is condemning. The religious people of his day were doing that, and the religious people of our day do it, and even the people who leave religion create a new religion and do it. It's what we do. We demarcate and generalize other as a collective other. We have liturgies, sacraments that say who's in and who's out. We will search for righteousness. That's what we do. And so Paul presses into this tension. What do we do with people, people who fail to be who they say they are? And notice what he says. Even if we're all liars, that doesn't mean God is. If we are all liars... God is not. If Israel's history teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is faithful despite Israel's failure. To suggest human faithfulness could make God faithless is to make God the object of an external and evil force. God is true, true to himself, true to Christ, true to his word, true to his promises, true to his people. God is merciful and God is faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. God is not a contingent being whose actions depend on something outside of himself. God is an essential being whose actions are true to his character despite human response to it. And it's a punishing truth, by the way, that we're all liars. that in the face of not living up to who we are called to be or who we think we are called to be, that we lie. It's a punishing truth. When we look around at the failures of the church, it's a punishing truth. But whatever we must concede about ourselves, the liberating hope is that God is true. Karl Barth affirms he is the answer, the helper, the judge, the redeemer, not man. God is not a speculative truth, but a living and subsistent truth who helps, aids, restores, and saves. It is precisely because God is not like us that he's able to help us. God does not regard the mask. In fact, all the ways we are unrighteousness, 
just makes God's righteousness that much more clear and amazing. Now, don't miss this. Paul is saying God is so amazing, so incredible, that our unrighteousness, these great failures, just make God's righteousness that much more incredible, more evident. Like, you know when a product is being sold in an infomercial, when they hold up the old standard and the competitor, the new standard, and say, look at the difference. That is what Paul is saying. This is, he he already said this is Gentile unrighteousness, this is Jewish unrighteousness, and now look, up at, look at it up against God's righteousness. Our failures as the church, the religious person's inability to become, just become a showcase for God's righteousness. So the question still remains, what do we do with all our failure? Do we just embrace it? Excuse it? Should we be untrue if even our untruth shows just how true God is? If God's truth becomes fully apparent in the face of human wretchedness, then sin throws God's truth into greater relief, verse 7. And if human wickedness does not thwart God's righteousness, indeed God uses wickedness for his righteous purposes, perhaps we should just do evil so more good can come. Is that what we do? Paul says that's what he's being accused of, by the way, by his contemporaries. Do we walk away, deconvert? Do the promises become untrue because of the examples in the church? Do we blame it away? It's them, it's the liberals in the church. It's the hypocrites and the Pharisees in the church. Do we hunker down in fear? Worry about man's failure drives many of us to bunker down and protect God, which makes our failures that much more egregious and profound when we don't and can't protect God. The way Paul offers is that He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail in judgment. What do we do with our failure from Psalm 51? This comes from Psalm 51, verse 4. We prayed a part of Psalm 51 in the Song of Confession today, where David acknowledges his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and confesses that God is true and just in his judgment of David's covetousness, adultery, and murder. David has been a liar. But in his lie, he has known God's truth and in his confession decides to bank on God's mercy. Now, God isn't just excusing this, by the way. He isn't writing all this unrighteousness off. This is what Paul is emphasizing. His mercy is who he is, and yet he will judge. In fact, his judgment of this sort of sin not being who we are called to be, and then our responses to it with privilege and posturing, all of this has been judged on the cross. This is Paul's amazing good news 
Judgment for all of this has fallen on his son. The cross is the place where mercy and judgment meet. This is our God. He is merciful. He is true. Even if we are all liars, even if the Jews have failed to live into their calling, even if the church has punted on so much of her responsibility, God is merciful and true, full of love and full of power. And undone by how God is true and we are all liars, and yet there is no excuse, is the foundation of the scaffolding. All this moral failure, all our Christian racism and nationalism, all these saints that make up our churches bickering and complaining, and all our responses to numb ourselves and just say, forget it, all the deconstruction, all the despair, none of it can mute God. None of it can undo him. None of it can stop his purposes. Our infidelity cannot undo his fidelity, Paul says. If as Paul maintains, God remains true in the face of human lying, if God remains righteous in the face of human unrighteousness, it does not follow that God is unjust in his judgment of human unrighteousness or that humans are somehow free to act however they please. God is wholly other. God is God and not human. But that does not absolve us from being human. God's goodness is never rivaled by human goodness. Neither is God's goodness increased by human badness. God is perfectly good and just and merciful. Otherwise, he could not judge the world. And human evil is not worse because it grows any more than cancer is more deadly because it infects three vital organs instead of one. Nor is human evil less evil because God chooses to meet it with good. That would be like saying that if a master painter could paint a bad painting into a good one, then the original painting was not bad after all. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, that does not change the fact that the unrighteousness is ours and the righteousness is God's. And yet, there will be many who, because of our witness, harden their hearts to the truth of God. But that can't nullify him. Bart has this line in his commentary, the despair of the elect is occasioned by the unrighteousness of the arbitrary and tyrannical egotism of men. And we are all those who champion the unrighteousness of the arbitrary and act out because of our tyrannical egotism. So what do we do? What do we do? We own it. We embrace the truth of the gospel, the promise, and we be true. First, regeneration. Second, repentance. Third, renewal. Paul in 28 and 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Inwardly and outwardly, repeat the teaching of 2, verses 11 and 16. The true sign of the covenant is a willing 
heart, which includes inner regeneration, conversion, moral renewal, recognition that I can't be who I think I should be. I can't live into who I'm, call, who I'm called to be. I need outward salvation. I need someone to come in from the outside and renew me on the inside so that I can follow after God. And by following after God, it is a continual walk of repentance, confession, repentance, confession. That is the story of the Christian. We believe the gospel so we confess and repent. Apart from such commitment, circumcision of the flesh is a meaningless mark. Baptism is just getting you wet. In fact, it is a sign of condemnation because it signifies the disparity between the ideal and the failure to live it out. Circumcision thus does not make one a Jew, but reveals the Jew inwardly, the circumcision of the heart. And the circumcised heart's boast is in the mercy and grace of God. Now, what's hard about this? It's like, what do we do? You believe you can't do it, and you thrust yourself on the mercy of God. You confess and own that you can't do it, and you thrust yourself and repent and turn and throw yourself on the mercy of God. Now, I quoted you at the beginning uh, uh, from Nightbird, her song, where she talks about living a lie. Nightbird was on America's Got Talent recently. She sang a song, sang that song that I quoted to you. When she got up to start sharing her story, Howie starts asking her questions, and Nightbird shares that she has had cancer. And they ask her if she's going to survive, and she says, well... I really don't know. She says, I'm, I still have cancer. And they're all like shocked and amazed. It's like, it feels like no one like informed them that this was her story before she got up on stage, or maybe they didn't read the, the briefing. But then she proceeds to sing this beautiful song. And Simon Cowell, like, he doesn't know what to do with the fact that she's singing this song that ultimately is a song really of hope and belief in the face of what she's dealing with, her cancer and her loss. He, he doesn't know what to do with it. In fact, all the judges don't. Now, he eventually gets up on stage and like hugs her, and it's like this beautiful, it's really touching moment. If you can get onto YouTube and watch it, I would suggest you do. But weeks earlier, Nightbird wrote an essay called God is on the Bathroom Floor. This was before she got famous on America's Got Talent. I'm going to read to you most of this essay to close. Listen to her speak of God's mercy. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer, and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with all of it, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused physical head trauma. The body keeps score, in other words, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. 
I spent three months propped up against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now. I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes when I die and meet with God that he will say I'm dis I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. And maybe he'll just say I never learned the lesson or I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I've seen him in rare form. I've felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I am sad, too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it, but maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me every morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees in my mother's crooked hands in the blanket my friend left for me in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. Even on the days when I'm not so sick, 
Sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. And this is where we all Paul thrust all his hope on God's righteousness. Human righteousness, irreligious or religious, always fails. Pride and privilege are always undone. Regeneration is always followed with repentance and humility. We did nothing. We were given revelation, and God enabled us to respond, and we are humbled. And our response to failing to be who we are is always to thrust yourself on his mercy. He is true. We are liars. Let that recreate you into someone who is true. But when you are true... You know that truth only comes from him. Let's pray. God, you met us on the bathroom floor. There is no rising above it. And so I pray this morning that all of who we think we should be would not be met with our own lies, but we'd be met with your truth, that you are a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who judges judgment onto Christ So let's run to him and find the salvation that we are seeking. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.